Hey, hey, everybody, this is Kim C, and you're listening to The Year of Underrated Stephen King. This is a literary book podcast where I, a university fiction teacher, do my best to tackle the underrated novels, as well as each glorious Stephen King short story, one by one. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. How is everybody? Thank you so very much for joining me to unlock and explore the next 11 stories of 1985 Skeleton Crew. Last week, we set aside the super retro monster cool novella of The Mist, which is the first title within Skeleton Crew. And today, we are kicking off part one part one podcast coverage by examining the next 11 stories out of the total 22. So for those of you who have spent some time with me with the year of underrated Stephen King podcast, you might know I'm a huge all caps short story fan and an even bigger King short story fan. I nerd out exponentially with how he constructs these little micro burst tales. I adore them so much, so, so much. Uh, Breaking down a short story collection is a true joy for me, folks. True and total joy. Stephen King short stories are, for me, the epitome of a mystery box of chocolates. They are all delicious in their own unique way, but the ones with nuance, the ones with flavors that linger and texture, and those are my favorites. And in this collection, thus far, it has produced some ultra tasty morsels, dear friends. We have some glittering gems, but right beside those gems, well, <laughs> with this collection, folks, I have some concerns. So, right next to the extra delicious, ultra perfect ones, there are a few that I kind of wanted to spit out. Just gonna say that. I feel, yeah, I feel that's accurate. Uh, this door, short story collection, it's gonna be a bit of a challenging one because I think. We've got some issues with juxtaposition, as well as the content in some of these stories, how how old it is. I just feel a few of them aren't aging so well in these modern days. But at the same time, I also think this is one of the most horror-soaked King collections I've thus far encountered within my King journey. So this... Skeleton Crew thus far has been a really good reminder that even though I love King for his literary power, beautiful writing, total command, in my opinion, of the fiction craft, uh, many others love him for those reasons with the addition that he terrifies them good and proper. And that's a challenge for someone who considers herself not the biggest horror fan. As you guys know, I like horror However, I'm really ultra super particular about it. It's It must be, for the most part, for me to really love it, it's got to be soaked in the gothic. There has to be great setting, layered characters, tons of plot secrets. It all has to work just so. 
And most of the time, Mr. King gives us that feast of great slow burn storytelling that rips our souls right out of our bodies because the experience is working so well. However, what we have here, at least in a few of these stories, is just a little different, uh, just a smidgen. It's not bad. I don't know if it's good either, but we're going to talk about it. We're going to go there. We are going to take a look at all of that. But before we start investigating where some of these stories lit my fire as well as where the flames were most assuredly dampened, (laughs) let's introduce each story with a little summary attached to help us jog our memories. So my hope is that these little snippet summaries will help help all of you guys who haven't read Skeleton Key in a hot minute remember the details to these uh, story chunks. You can vibe along with me or um, you can jump into Skeleton Crew for the first time. Hopefully these little snippets might entice you to take a look at these stories and you can uh, brush up on them and then jump back to this episode because once more I'm going to be discussing story details somewhat in depth so if you would like to avoid spoilers please tread carefully. Uh, For the most part, I do my very best to steer away from overall endings, huge plot reveals, unless it's super duper needs discussing, which a few of these stories, the, the endings, that's the tricky thing with short stories. Usually, the way they end are pretty integral to the creation of the whole enchilada. The whole burrito really is uh, has to be talked about, including the ending. So uh, they're, it's the reason why I love them. They're just short bursts of powerful construction. So heads up, I don't want to ruin any of these for you. Make sure if any of them sound super sexy and super enticing, let's jump back there, read the story really quick. They're not super long. And then jump back to this episode so I don't spoil anything for you. So just a heads up, a caveat emptor, a buyer beware. I don't want to ruin, I don't want to be that guy. So here are a little, um, here are a few story uh, snippets, some summary snippets for each story. So of course, story number one was last week's The Mist, but we're going to do story number one again. (laughs) So technically speaking, last week was The Mist, which was our first story slash novella, but I did construct my list one through 11. So here we go. Story number one, Here There Be Tigers, originally published in 1968. A young third grader gets a lot more than he bargained for after requesting a hall pass to go to the restroom. Story number two, The Monkey, first published in 1980. While rummaging through his childhood home, Hal's two sons find a tattered monkey toy. To Hal's shock, it is the monkey with the clapping symbols, the toy that Hal threw down a well nearly two decades prior. Story number three, Cain Rose Up, originally published in 1968. College student Kurt Garish returns to his dorm room after his last final with more than defeat on his mind. Story number four, Mrs. Todd's Shortcut, first published in 1984. 
Homer is the caretaker of the summer home for the Todds. He recalls the tale of the Todds to his friend David, particularly the knowing of Mrs. Ursula Todd, her love of a good shortcut while navigating the main back roads and where he felt she may have disappeared to, as not a soul has seen her in years. Story number five, The Jaunt, first published in 1981. In the 24th century, Mark Oates, his wife, and two children are leaving Schenectady, New York to live on a Mars outpost for the next few years. They're waiting to jaunt, and while they wait, Mark tells his family the story of scientist Victor Caroon and how in 1987, he discovered the path to interstellar teleportation. Story number six, The Wedding Gig, originally published in 1980. It's Chicago, the 1900s, and jazz is at the center of of a band leader recalling the tale of when his group booked a wedding gig for a mafia-soaked bunch of ruffians. Story number seven, Paranoid, A Chant. This first-person narrative poem comes from a man afraid to leave the house for many reasons. One of them is the man by the door in a raincoat. Story number eight, The Raft, first published in 1982. Four college students, Randy, Deke, Rachel, and Laverne, enjoy the last of summer on the lake. They strip down to their underwear and swim to the abandoned raft, where the presence of a mysterious black oil slick keeps them from returning to the water. Story number nine, originally published in 1983, is Word Processor of the Gods. Unhappy family man Richard Hagstrom receives a homemade word processor from his recently deceased nephew. Richard discovers this device does a lot more than help him write. Story number 10, The Man Who Wouldn't Shake Hands, first published in 1981. Welcome back to the Manhattan Gentlemen's Club of 249B East 35th Street, where it's the year 1919, and we learn the tale of Henry Brower, the man who would not shake hands. Story number 11, Beach World, first published in 1984. Thousands of years in the future, Rand and Shapiro are the lone survivors on a sand dune planet that has a strange power over anyone that goes outside the ship. All right, ladies and gents, that's our 11 tales. That's uh, that's what I have completed reading, digesting, constructing some notes, and dividing into categories. And what's crazy, dear ones, is Skeleton Crew in the 1985 American hardcover only has a few king notes in the back of the book. And it, what's sad is not every story gets a king note, and that's a first for me. Um, I I'm sad. <laughs> um. I, I'm spoiled. That's what it is. Um, there's only a couple thoughts to a couple stories. And as a constant reader, having digested a lot of the later story collections, I'm just completely spoiled with the the later versions, the later stories that King has given a note to each story. 
Uh, he always gives us a little snippet of, of what he was diving into, what inspired the story, what was happening in his life when he was creating it. Lots of great stuff. And it just allows a richer reading experience. It allows you to gel so much more with the content. But this collection is rather sparse, dear listeners. Not a lot of extra is attached. And the majority of these stories did not receive special spotlight. So... I don't know. I'm unsure if that's indicative of him not caring too much about the story that don't get a note or rather there was just nothing really interesting about it or maybe he just had no idea like what was going on or what inspired it. I'm not sure. We must, of course, remember that uh, these are these are King's um, substance uh, use years. So we've got lots of drugs and alcohol in the early 80s. Uh, so there's that. Um, but well, yeah, I, I I found I thought this one was kind of interesting. Uh, so we're gonna talk, of course, about the stories that did get a king note versus those that did not get a king note. And just like we do in all creative writing workshops, we're gonna start with the positive. We're going to begin this episode with the stories that slayed. We will of course examine out of the 11 the few that really got me salivating the ones that totally blew my dress up and then after that we will transition to the stories that were i'm torn if i want to do the honorable mentions in the middle or maybe at the end so uh we will most definitely have the tales that made kim see a little upsetty spaghetti in regards to content Uh, Or rather, I just feel there's not enough storytelling pros to outweigh the cons of the story. Um, And then after that, we may or may not have some honorable mentions of stories that I liked, I really wanted to love, but there's just, there's something missing. There's just a couple things that uh, need to be added to the soup, just just to kind of keep working with it. So... There's a lot of complex feelings coming at you in the next couple sections, dear ones, but I'm really excited to be here with you. I hope you guys enjoy. Ergo, without further ado, let's head into the select few tales in the first half of 1985 Skeleton Crew that were absolutely stellar. I'll meet you there. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome, welcome to the winner's circle. I have three stories I would like to celebrate with you guys. These ones really, really captured me. As soon as they were over, I quickly wanted to read them again and take my time and 
really relish what King was doing with these. So the first tale uh, I'm going to mention is definitely spectacular, dear ones. Like this one is holy crap. And I said at the end of last week's episode, The Mist, it was one I had read and I, I had... I thought this was long ago with our first constant reader interview of uh, Liz R. Way, 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 way in the fledgling moments of the podcast. Uh, My good friend Liz R., this is one of her favorite short stories and she told me to read it. And I remember reading it, but I don't think I really read it. You know, like I think I might have glazed a little bit here and there and I kind of had a lot of questions about the ending but this time I really took my time and I am blown away dear friends like oh oh my goodness so this first one I'm going to discuss with you might be unless it is topped my favorite short story within skeleton crew it is that powerful friends and that is going to be Mrs. Todd's shortcut This was originally published in 1984 in a women's magazine known as Red Book. My mom used to read that all the time when I was a kid. I distinctly remember fishing it out of the mailbox and giving it to her. But this, oh my god, you guys, this is wow. Uh, It is one of the stories that does get a King blurb in the back of the book. Uh, King writes that he just really loves the language in this. It was one where he says you kind of just read it over when you're all finished and are truly thrilled by how it sounds. And I guess his wife Tabby kind of inspired a little bit of Ophelia Todd. I accidentally called her Ursula Todd in the last section. Pardon, 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 forgive me. Uh, So Miss Ophelia Todd and her love of shortcuts is apparently Uh, akin to uh, Steve's wife, Tabitha, who also loves a good shortcut, but there is so much to celebrate with this one, guys. This is a little over 20-ish pages. It is successful for so many ways, so let's go down the list as to why it's wonderful. Firstly, narration or narrative structure. If you guys remember a couple months back, uh, especially if you're a Tower Junkies pod fan, I had a really great time talking with good friend Matt Hurt, the host of Tower Junkies, and we explored some truly amazing Stephen King short stories from Everything's Eventual, one of them being LT's Theory of Pets. And one of the great things about LT's Theory of Pets is it has a peripheral narrator, kind of like what we have here, where it's somebody else telling the story of a friend they know. So it's we we don't really get to know our narrator very well. He's just relaying the story as he encountered it and he lived it. And there's something really cool and rich about that. So we have that same thing with Mrs. Todd Shortcut with the character of David, who we don't know much about. But we have him in direct contact with Homer, who's a seemingly older main resident, seems to have been there his entire life. And uh, they're kind of outside of a a gas station sitting on the porch having some beer and talking and that's when Homer reveals this relationship in quotes I'll put that in quotes 
this very interesting connection with Mrs. Ophelia Todd, who is basically kind of like, um, a, a summer person, I think that uh, they would call them in Maine. These are the people who are financially, uh, well off, where they can afford a home in a different location and they hang out there for the summer. And then once the summer dies down and fall and autumn or fall and winter start to creep up, they fly home. So they're consistently seeking warmer climates. I think a lot of people do that all over the place. Uh, and so Ursula, why? No, her name is Ophelia, not Ursula. I don't know where I'm getting this, guys. Ophelia, like the Shakespeare, like Hamlet. Ophelia Todd. <laughs> she is uh, a summer person, but completely enamored with being useful and being part of the community and just plugging herself in in all kinds of city initiatives. She's really surprising. She's not like the typical summer tourist who comes to Maine and just, you know, takes a boat out onto the lake and gets drunk and causes a little bit of trouble for the locals. No, like she's she's really, really involved and, and very special to the town. So I'm kind of going off track a little bit because we were talking about narrative structure, but narrative structure is very cool. It's very rich and it has that same kind of structure that I really enjoyed from LT's Theory of Pets, which is a wonderful story if you haven't checked it out. Um, but the other thing that's quite compelling in is the, the, the language. We have a lot of that traditional colloquial main uh, ex, uh, sort of language and expressions that King does so well. This is, it's just, it's very, very tied to the land. Um, certain words, certain phrasing. I'm actually going to read you uh, a nice healthy sample of the story to kind of observe the power of this story. We've got the narrative structure. But we also have this, this really rich, decadent, colloquial language that just makes the whole thing sing. And then, of course, in addition to narrative structure and the language, we have this really darkly magical story, guys. And it is, I, I feel if you are a Neil Gaiman fan who's kind of like a, the dark fantasy maestro these days, uh, this is something that he would probably salivate over. He probably wishes he could have wrote it. It's it's so uh, darkly fantastical and magical, and I I love the content of this. It's simple, but we basically have uh, Mrs. Todd, Mrs. Ophelia Todd. I'm gonna cement this into my brain right here and now. She loves to drive fast and she loves to, uh, she loves a good shortcut, but something starts to happen that inserts the fantastical and the magical, and I can't help thinking, uh, I can't help but think about, uh, one of my all-time fave Steve King novels, as we've discovered in the last year or so on the podcast, is 2006's Lisey's Story. We've got a literal magical other world known as Booyah Moon with a lot of wild jungle, freaky, floral uh, stuff going on. And uh, th this leans to that a little bit. The darkly fantastical nature begins to envelop the characters and the reader. And it also, for you constant readers out there, a couple months ago, or maybe a year ago, time is 
such an irrelevant construct these days, <laughs> post-2020, I just feel like I'm in the blip. Um, uh, when I examined Just After Sunset, there is a fantastic dark little story in there called N, the letter N. And that one uh, is, of course, in a isolated main forest where there are roads with uh, construction signs preventing the driver from going forward and I get the feeling that you know perhaps Mrs. Todd might have crossed over into the isolated abandoned forest in the short story N. I don't know what made me think of that. It just kind of happens once you start enveloping yourself in these king tales. Um, but N is, ooh, that one's a wonderfully creepy one with also, uh, N has connections to Under the Dome as well that are very pleasing. But uh, yeah, Mrs. Todd Shortcut. Oh, loves. This is this is fantastic. This is, this is a wow. This is a 10 out of 10 for me. And I cannot wait to share this textual sample with you. Uh, fingers crossed I can read it correctly because there is so much nuance in, in the expression, in the colloquialism of our narrator Homer. So this is, of course, on page 192. Let me move my post-it note on the 1985 American hardcover. So I'm going to read a little bit of, of uh, this story, and I just want you to listen to this fantastic language, the the syntax, just what what's going down with this is quite beautiful, as well as the content. All right, here we go. Letta Ripi says the ball bearing in her ankle rolled, and that heavy foot come down can't tell you nothing much about what all happened after that, except after a while I couldn't hardly take my eyes off her. There was something wild that crept into her face, Dave. Something wild and something free, and it frightened my heart. She was beautiful, and I was took with love for her. Anyone would have been, any man anyway, and maybe any woman too, but I was scared of her too, because she looked like she could kill you if her eye left the road and fell on you and she decided to love you back. She was wearing blue jeans and an old white shirt with the sleeves rolled up, and I had an idea she was maybe fixing to paint something on the back deck when I came by, but after we'd been going for a while, it seemed like she was dressed in nothing but all this white billowy stuff like a picture in one of those old gods and goddesses books. He thought, looking out across the lake, his face very somber, like the huntress that was supposed to drive the moon across the sky. Diana? Yeah, moon was her go-devil. Ophelia looked like that to me, and I just tell you fair out that I was stricken in love for her and never would have made a move, even though I was some younger than, than I am now. I would have not made a move even if had I been 20, although I suppose I might have at 16 and been killed for it, killed if she looked at me, was the way it felt. She was like that woman driving across the moon. Driving, driving the moon across the sky, halfway up over the splashboard with her gossamer stoles all flying out behind her in silver cobwebs, and her hair streaming back to show the dark little hollows of her temples, lashing those horses and telling me to get along faster, never mind how they blowed, just faster, faster, faster. 
We went down a lot of wood roads. The first two or three I knew, and after that I didn't know none of them. We must have been a sight to those trees that had never seen nothing with a motor in it before but big old pulp trucks and snowmobiles. That little go-devil that would most likely have looked more at home on the Sunset Boulevard than shooting through those woods, spitting and bullying its way up one hill and then slamming down the next through those dusty green bars of afternoon sunlight. She had the top down, and I could smell everything in those woods. And you know what an old fine smell that is? Something like something which has been mostly left alone and is not much troubled. We went on across corduroy, which had been laid over some of the biggest, boggiest parts, and black mud squelched up between some of those cut logs, and she laughed like a kid. Some of the logs was old and rotted because there hadn't been nobody down a couple of those roads, except for her, that is, in, I'm going to say, five or ten years. We was alone, except for the birds and whatever animals seen us. The sound of that go-devil's engine, first buzzing along and then winding up high and fierce when she punched in the clutch and shifted down, that was the only motor sound I could hear. And although I knew we had to be close to some place all the time, I mean, these days you always are, I started to feel like we had gone back in time and there wasn't nothing. That if we stopped and I climbed a high tree, I wouldn't see nothing in any direction but woods and woods and more woods. And all the time, she's just hammering that thing along, her hair all out behind her, smiling, her eyes flashing. So we come out on the speckled bird mountain road and for a while, I known where we were again. And then she turned off and for just a little bit, I thought I knew. And then I didn't even bother to kid myself no more. We went cut slam down another woods road, and then we come out, I swear it, on a nice paved road with a sign that say Motorway B. You ever heard of a road in the state of Maine that was called Motorway B? No, I says. Sounds English. Yeah, looked English. All right, we will stop there, even though I am so tempted to go on further because wow dear folks the whole story is like that friends it is just rich and when you actually get to the end which is quite magical and kind of like i don't uh, it's so cool because it's like uh, the, the tone of it is slightly happy but also slightly maybe i don't know like mysteriously dark and uh, you know, there's, there's something quite cool about this. It, it just, after I finished it, I started reading it again immediately. The, the language, everything about it, the overall narrative content, the narrative structure, I just melted for it. The richness of the colloquial language, but the actual reveal of what has happened to Ophelia Todd. Um, it, it's very cool, guys, and you can't help but kind of smile at the end, and it, oh man, this is very special. It's just one that completely captured me. It is 
uh, wow this is this is very special i that is what i will continue to say and i think king in the back of the book said that other ma- women's magazines kind of turned him down a little bit uh, due to some of the choices that ophelia todd kind of makes earlier in the story and i'm just kind of blown away by that it's amazing how times have changed but uh yeah red book picked it up and this is this is so cool this is one that i feel is it just keeps you thinking about it and that's that's how i know king has given me a good one is uh if it's been about a good 24 48 72 hours and i'm still thinking about these visuals from mrs todd shortcut and this very odd little connection between two characters homer is of course uh, a married man as he kind of starts his tale and there's a significant amount of time that goes by in this tale but you know he he's really not in direct contact with with ophelia he's he just kind of takes care of the house and uh it's it's a he's really more of an afterthought in her life and and yet he she's just such a a powerful energetic figure who has stumbled upon something quite larger than life um this is i could go on and on and on dear folks and that's how you know we've got a winner mrs todd shortcut is one that needs to be read and celebrated and dissected and pulled apart and examined and i just i it is so cool this is so cool guys so if you have not yet read mrs todd shortcut uh get your get your hands on it either get an isolated pdf or get your hands on a copy of skeleton crew and take your time with it read it out loud if you must or as we are constantly pushing here on the podcast we are a huge huge fan of the audiobook in in a in in tandem that's the word i wanted to use with the physical text have the text in front of you have the audiobook in your ears your brain is hearing and seeing language at the same time which allows for maximum absorption and memory and it's going to be such a rich experience for you so please do that but this one is oh my god guys like wow just wow this is this is a wow this is a 10 out of 10 um I'm, I'm continuing to think about it, um, and this might be uh, definitely one of my favorite all-time Stephen King short stories, but it definitely might be the favorite of Skeleton Crew. So we won't say that quite yet. We will wait until we're finished with all of the stories. We have 10 more to go after this, but Mrs. Todd Shortcut is spectacular, and that's what I wanted to kick off in this area of the episode where we are going to look at the positives and the strongest stories. So number two, the next story that really, really romanced my heart completely is The Man Who Would Not Shake Hands. So before I talk about all the things I really enjoyed about this story, I have to first mention that I think the reason I loved it so much is because this is another installment from a 
another story that was first featured in 1982's Different Seasons. So the topic and the premise of this story is connected to something else. So I'll start with that. We do need to jump back to 1982's Different Seasons to the very last story in that four, in that, um, quadruple novella collection is the last one called winter's tale and that the actual title of the novella is the breathing method so if you jump back to my episode on that i think i spent some time discussing what a shocking story the breathing method is because it is it is quite shocking the actual um story within a story but that's what i want to highlight for you guys is um the story of the breathing method is like two stories in one and it begins in the gentleman's manhattan gentleman's club the 249b east 35th street i think um so all we know is that there's a bunch of gentlemen who kind of gather and it's a pretty sophisticated place there's a billiards room there's a huge fireplace and over the fireplace is this engraving it is the tale and not the teller who tells it i think i might have butchered that a little bit i don't know if i got the quote exactly correct but it's something like that and uh let's just say there's something very interesting about this this brownstone this manhattan uh little club um in which case we've got some elderly members we have gentlemen of all ages who will gather for poker and drinks and cigars and and then somebody starts to tell a story so there's that and then with the breathing method we get the tale of one of the members who describes a very snowy uh tale well a a night where there was a lot of snow and um as a horrific tale that is quite unforgettable it is very cool if you're into the macabre which i kind of am a little bit i think that this is very it's very dark it's like if lovecraft was writing in modern day i think i would i would it, it's grim <laughs> that's all i'm gonna say and there's no way in hell it could ever be adapted like there's just no way in hell i have a feeling there would just be full-on protests outside the theater um just because of how controversial it is uh it's an amazing story so i am of course going on and on about a winter's tale the breathing method but uh i talk about that because i think if you read the breathing method and then you jump over here to the man who would not shake hands you're gonna love it guys you're gonna absolutely love it because once more we return to the gentleman's club we return to the fireplace with the butler stevens and the same kind of mysterious ancient timeline going on uh, and we jump back to the year 1919 where uh, mr gregson who's a very old man at the telling of the tale was a very young man he had uh, just kind of returned from the war and his uh, wife-to-be died of um i want to say it's spanish flu but some sort of illness and yeah he's he's struggling with grief until one night this man named henry brower arrives into the club and asks if 
they would be interested in playing poker with him. And they're like, absolutely. And this, this is how the tale begins. And, um, they go to shake Mr. Brower's hand and he vehemently declines and says, please do not touch my hand. I've been abroad in India and I'm just, you know, very uncomfortable. Please don't shake my hand. To which they're like, okay, okay. Uh, the, the poker evening goes on to which there's a lot of money in the pot. And that is all I will say for, for now, because I really want you guys to read it. It's, it's, wonderful. It's rich. And the fact that it's an accompanying piece to the breathing method makes me so, so happy. And it sounds like there's no other installments of, uh, there's no further stories, at least as far as I know. I'm hoping that the other story collections, Nightmares and Dreamscapes or Four Past Minute, I'm hoping some of those have the Gentleman's Club in it. Or if it has a name, please let me know because I don't know what it's called. But like, this is so cool guys like if we had an entire story collection just from the manhattan from the 249b i would be one happy constant reader let me tell you i am so into it now guys this club this manhattan brownstone is so mysterious and ancient and i think it has the ability to transcend worlds most definitely it does and we get that indication in the breathing method with our narrator kind of walking around some of the halls and he's like i've never seen this in my life or i've never heard of this author before in my life so we kind of get the idea that maybe this place has the ability to go into i don't know mid-world or all worlds or any of the dark tower universes um it, it's definitely not staying put in our timeline, our linear 2020th, 21st century. So I love it. And it is such a cool story. The language once more is incredibly rich and dense. And I did want to share another sample with you. This one will be a little shorter, but I'm just so smitten kitten for the man who would not shake hands. So this is once more written in, in a kind of traditional English, uh, a lot, little bit more dense, a little bit more Britlet kind of sounding for anybody who likes a nice dense narration. So this is going to be on page 302 in the 1985 American hardcover. And let's just listen in on what King is doing with our narrator and with kind of the characters he's bringing to the reader as we go from like really fancy schmancy um, uh, Manhattan uh, upper echelon individuals and the way they speak to kind of hunting down Mr. Brower among the dread dregs and other um unsavory neighborhoods in the days that followed i tried to tell myself that it was all the nasty coincidence best forgotten i did not sleep well even with the help of my good friend mr cuddy sark i told myself that the thing to do was divide that night's last pot between the three of us and forget that henry brower had ever stepped into our lives but i could not I drew a cashier's check from this for the sum instead and went to the address that Greer had given me, which was in Harlem. He was not there. His forwarding address was a place on the east side, a slightly less well-off neighborhood of nonetheless respectable brownstones. He had left those lodgings a full month before the poker game and the new address was in the East Village, an area of ramshackle tenements. The building superintendent, 
A scrawny man with a huge black mastiff snarling at his knee told me that Brower had moved out on April 3rd, the day after our game. I asked for a forwarding address and he threw back his head and emitted a screaming gobble that apparently served him in the place of laughter. The only forwarding address they gives when they leave here is hell, boss, but sometimes they stops in the Bowery on their way there. The Bowery was then what it is only believed to be out by what it is believed to be by out of towners now. The, the home of the homeless, the last stop for the faceless men who only care for another bottle of cheap wine or another shot of the white powder that brings long dreams. I went there. In those days, there were dozens of flop houses, a few benevolent missions that took drunks in for the night, and hundreds of alleys where a man might hide an old louse-ridden mattress. I saw scores of men, all of them little more than shells, eaten by drink and drugs. No names were known or used. When a man has sunk to a final basement level, his liver rotted by wood alcohol, his nose an open, festering sore from the constant sniffing of cocaine and potash, his fingers destroyed by frostbite, his teeth rotted to black stubs. A man no longer has a use for a name, but I described Henry Brower to every man I saw with no response. Bartenders shook their heads and shrugged. The others just looked at the ground and kept walking. Oh my goodness. Um, I am so smitten for this one, guys. Uh, rich, beautiful, decadent language structure. And the fact that we have a hauntingly sad outcome. Uh, very cool. Very good. Um, I love the fact that we have young Mr. Gregson in 1919, and then we have potentially present-day Mr. Gregson, an old man of 80-plus, telling the tale um, in the large hearth room of 249B. I, oh gosh, guys, um, the fact that I have read The Breathing Method and now I get to read this, it's just delicious. I love that it is an accompanying piece. It's like a, a, a little extended branch of this very, very cool premise that is this mysterious gentleman's club in Manhattan. I love it, love it, love it. So if you would like to enjoy this, I recommend uh, first beginning, make sure you've read The Breathing Method. Make sure you spend time with that text a little bit and then jump over to the man who would not shake hands totally worth it very very rich all right dear ones the third and final story that we're going to talk about in terms of the the prize room the winners the winner circle the last one i would like to mention is word processor of the gods so this one was published in 1983 in playboy which king talks about at the beginning of skeleton crew kind of talking about the publication process and um the, the way that the author's sum is kind of chopped and divided and whatnot but yeah, it was in Playboy, and it, it kind of makes sense. However, so this one's an interesting one, because I really, really like it a lot. However, um, it's too short for me. It definitely needs to be longer. I think this one is a less than 10-pager, or right around 10 pages. Um, so what I also like about it, and I don't know if this is a bad thing, 
is it kind of reminds me of another short story that I absolutely love. So that might not, I don't know, we're going to talk about it. But one thing I'll start us off with is in these first 11 stories, we have two stories concerning magical objects or mystical, um, physical objects that have a kind of power. And these are so cool, um, it, this kind of subject in the horror genre. Uh, so the two stories we have, of course, are Word Processor of the, Word Processor of the Gods, and then we also have um, The Monkey. So The Monkey is our one of the early stories in the collection, and that is definitely a malevolent object. This is a very creepy item that brings a lot of dark fate to those who encounter it. Um, it kind of reminds me of like Annabelle the doll, which is a freaky um, item that's popped up in multiple horror films in the past five, five, six years, I think. Uh, so this is a very cool aspect of horror that I actually get uh, on board with quite a bit. Um, it's one of the reasons why I love Duma Key so much because we have multiple dolls in that gothic beach glory fest. Uh, so we have another haunted object. However, this one is benevolent. This one is kind of doing the opposite of those freakish items, the ones that bring death and doom and absolute peril. So with the word processor of the gods, we have um, a very, very early kind of personal computer and with a writing program attached to it. And what's kind of wonderful about this is the possibility for good. So before I kind of talk about the good things that the word processor does, what's very interesting about this story, guys, and one of the reasons why I just wish it was longer, is our main character is Richard Hagstrom, who absolutely covets his brother's life. Like the word is covet, which is, is one that we need to use. He wants his brother's son. He wishes that his his nephew was his real son because his son sucks. Um, according to the text, he also wishes that his brother's wife was his wife. Um, he, he just covets his brother's life. And this is okay for the reader because Richard reveals himself to be a kind of stand-up guy because his brother is a abusive heavily drinking man and that is the reason why he his wife and his son were killed is he was drunk driving and they had a catastrophic car accident so we have like richard coveting uh his brother's his now deceased brother's life and then insert this object that was crafted from his very smart very talented nephew jonathan who is now gone um, and so what I love is that the word processor brings the fortune and the, the sort of ability to undo what was done for Richard personally. And it's very cool. And this reminds me quite a bit of one of my favorite short stories that I discuss under the Bizarre of Bad Dreams episode, and that is Cookie Jar. I kind of have mentioned this story a couple times, Cookie Jar, um, with Matt and with a couple other podcast friends. 
I love the hell out of it so much and it is the one that I would make a film out of if I if I ever get the chance to do that um, but Cookie Jar huh, is another one of those tales that has a benevolent mystical object and it's a very large sort of navy blue if I'm correct if I'm correctly remembering the text kind of pottery cookie jar but inside the this cookie jar are of course uh, amazing freshly baked cookies always fresh of all different varieties and types but at the bottom of the cookie jar is a doorway to another world and or rather kind of like a looking glass to another world and it's amazing it's absolutely amazing and uh, brings a lot of good fortune to at least if i'm remembering the narrative correctly there seems to be a positive connotation with the cookie jar it does kind of there is a little bit of sadness attached to it in terms of those who go through life knowing its existence and stuff like that but I, I like the cookie jar as that kind of benevolent mystical object and we have that here with WordPresser of processor of the gods we have this computer program that somehow has the ability to give Richard everything he wants very much like a genie but there's no consequences to it he kind of just gets what he wants um, it's very cool uh and it's it's short and i need it to be longer because i think king could have went a couple directions with it he could have either you know um made made richard get what he wants but then of course it doesn't exactly turn out how he thought it would which i believe even though i haven't read it that's exactly what the novel needful things is about is leland gaunt is a very very big bad a, a villain who kind of uh, walks around town saying that he could give people what they want but when they get it it's not that it's, it's terrible it turns out to be disastrous granted i haven't read needful things yet i just know a little bit um that will happen this year though needful things gonna happen 2022 uh so back on track so i i really i'm trying not to love word processor of the gods because it makes me remember cookie jar i'm trying to observe it as a solo short story entity and i think i can i think i can appreciate it for um for what it is which is a short very cool little exploration of a mystical object that rather than takes and curses kind of brings about a a gift um that that benefits someone's life um so we're gonna talk about <laughs> the there's a couple themes in these stories that are off-putting and one of them is found inside word processor of the god so it prevents me from loving it. it i like word processor of the gods a lot but there is a theme and we're going to talk about it in the next section that is slightly off-putting and the fact that it's in playboy you're just like oh my gosh i roll when will we ever learn will we ever advance as a species i don't know so um i really really like word processor of the gods 
perhaps because it's got such potential, which is a tricky line to cross. We should really like the story as is. We have to really be careful of loving the idea of something that doesn't exist, which sometimes happens, you know, when especially if you're connecting it to other king works that were much more well-rounded and solid. But WordPress as of the gods is cool and I like I love the 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 trope of a mystical object whether it's like a cursed doll or a cursed monkey toy or rather a a benevolent you know a, a kind of genie a genie bottle and i think we get that genie bottle we get the opposite of cursed we get a magical benevolent object that grants wishes it grants wishes and it undoes the past and it gives the recipient whatever is their true heart's desire. And that's pretty cool. That's a really cool concept. And I think King could have taken it a few places. I just wish this thing was longer. Oh man, I just wanted more. It was it was very cool. Everything was working except for one thing that we're going to talk about in the next section. And if you've read it recently, you most likely know what that one thing is. Um, so we're going to get there, I promise. But to recap... Uh, my favorite, my three favorites in these first 11 stories of Skeleton Crew are, of course, the outstanding Mrs. Todd's shortcut, Mrs. Ophelia Todd. I'm not going to forget it. Uh, number two, the man who would not shake hands. Oh, swoon. So good. And then lastly, the very cool, very exciting word processor of the gods. So coming up next, guys, let's take a look at a few of the low marks, a couple of the low scoring stories, the ones where I just kind of just could not. Um, and then I think after that, we will have some honorable mentions. But for right now, let's talk about the stories that just missed the mark for me. I'll see you there. All right, everyone, thank you so much for hanging out as we explore the first 11 stories of 1985's Skeleton Crew. So in our last section, we talked about Mrs. Todd's shortcut, which is, for me, a truly spectacular, an absolute gem of a short story. I also really, really, really loved The Man Who Wouldn't Shake Hands, and I really like but want to love but can't love <laughs> the story uh word processors word oh my goodness word processor of the gods that one's a tricky one so the reason why i can't love that last one i really really like it i think it has tremendous potential it's a lot of fun is the subject i'm going to kind of touch on on what i've noticed thus far in the collection it might be a little bit of a tangent. I'm going to try to reel it in. So I'm going to try and balance this out by first beginning with, there is a quote from Stephen King's On Writing, which is a really beautiful discourse on the craft of fiction. It's an amazing, amazing book. I think it was released in the early 2000s. 
And in that book, he does say that if you want to write true, or if you want to be a writer that tells the truth, you will not be in polite society for very long. And so it's a very interesting sort of multi-layered quote there. And so I kind of kept that in mind as I was working my way through some of these stories where the content is extremely off-putting specifically the stories that have quite a bit of misogyny in them dear ones so at at least that's how it feels uh according to the story's juxtaposition so i understand that these tales were created and written as solo entities several years apart But when they're all smashed together, I really wish that the editors, I mean, granted it was different times back then, unfortunately, but I really wish that these editors would have kind of taken a look at the tone as a reader is making their way through these stories one after the other, if that could have been observed, because there is a thread, a very lively current of misogyny through a few of these stories. And one of them is, of course, inside the story I liked quite a bit, which was Word Processor of the Gods. As I mentioned, Richard Hagstrom, our main character in that story, is a very unhappy man wedded to a very overweight woman who is perceived to be quite cruel. And the, the whole thing that this thing was published in Playboy in 1983, I mean, a story like this kind of propagates the fact that an an overweight woman is an ugly woman inside and out. Uh, she, if, if they're unattractive physically, that means they're unattractive in all other ways. And uh, they're mean and hateful and spiteful and all they do is eat and and people like that must be absolute monsters and villains. And what you should strive for, reader, is a petite pinup with a manicured vagina and enhanced assets. Granted, I'm inserting my own thoughts with that one, but the, there is there is a direct quote inside Word Processor of the Gods where Richard calls his wife a rather piggy woman. And uh, by the time we get to, which I believe Word Processor is our ninth story in skeleton crew we've already had two additional stories in the collection just in these first 11 or the first 12 rather including the mist where women are kind of picked apart for weight and just being a woman the first one is of course the wedding gig which i think i said in the first introduction it was the 1900s it's actually the 1920s pardon me there it's in it's 1927 they're in chicago it's very jazzy it's very cool but one of the main characters happens to be a very overweight woman who is connected to this very wild crime family and of course the narrator makes great elaborate claims on just how unappealing she is how monstrous in form you know basically villainizing her size and so in these modern times at least i'd like to think that present day generations at least millennial and gen z we're we're kind of tired of it we're just kind of tired of of all of that and so 
I understand that these stories were written in a certain time from a certain uh, voice from King at that time, but when these stories are stacked back to back, dear folks, it's a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, So, of course, the wedding gig is ultra kind of over the top and making fun of this woman who is written to be rather large, but in the end, she kind of has a redeeming character arc of becoming very powerful, uh, which is kind of cool. But next, we have, uh, a little bit later on, a story called The Raft, which this one was really interesting, and I did a little bit of research on it, and King talks about The Raft as being a very early story he wrote, first first kind of brought to life in the late 60s, 1968, so he's super young. He's like, he's almost a, you know, young adult, almost in his 20s, and so The Raft was, or it was originally called The Float, and then he kind of in the late 70s, early 80s, was tinkering with it and brought it to what it now is called The Raft. We've got the four friends, Randy, Deke, Rachel, and Laverne. And guys, this one is like, oh, this was a challenge because the story itself is fun in an 80, early 80s horror movie kind of way. It feels very uh, very Camp Crystal Lake, which I actually think Crystal Lake might have been the title of the lake, uh, if I'm correct. It might have been the title of a lake in some of these. I think it might have been the lake in the monkey. Yeah, I think that's what it is. But um, it's very nostalgic 80s horror, which those are great fun. You've got your Friday the 13th, your Halloweens, your, your you know, your Jasons, your Freddies, your Mike Myers. It's very, very in that vibration of a fun kind of slasher fest for some teens and insert a water monster. However, in addition to that, there's this subtext that's very hard to digest as a female reader, um, or rather an empathetic reader, and that is that Deke and Randy are pretty terrible to these girls, dear listeners, like they really are. They, um, there's a lot of verbal abuse. There's even some physical abuse where he smacks one in the face. Uh, they're, of course, just talked about as sex objects. Uh, it's uh, There's a lot of sort of belittling and riddle, ridicule, and it's like, okay, this is... It's challenging, folks. And so I'm doing my best as an academic to kind of separate the man from the creation, but it's you know, I can't help but subjectively feel kind of put off and offended by what I'm reading. And it's it's totally okay to be, uh, to allow that to happen because that's what art is supposed to do, is supposed to move us and, and uh, it, that's its job. And however, I've, I've never really, I mean, granted, as you guys have might have uh, heard on the podcast, there have been a few moments where I've had a really hard time with King material, one of them being apt pupil. If you want to jump back to my different seasons, part one, like, I really hate that story. I find it psychologically fascinating, so there's a lot I appreciate objectively, there's a lot I like. However, the way it emotionally makes me feel, I hate it. It's It makes me feel awful, and I'm thoroughly disgusted, and I, I hate it so much. <laughs> However, objectively, there's a lot I appreciate, there's a lot I admire. 
Uh, I also felt this way about Bag of Bones. Bag of Bones, I think, has truly traumatized me, and that's all I want to say. Like, I hate it. I hate thinking about that story. Like, it really, really stabbed me in the heart, and it's continuing to stab me because the 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 final the finale of that novel was so shocking and so traumatic like it was it was too much it was really too much however you know i'm able to separate the objective from the subjective uh to the best of my ability concerning those two tales um so what's what's kind of challenging in these first 11 of skeleton crew is especially the stories that i mentioned is it's like okay this is this is an author who I completely understand why we have Richard Bachman, folks. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Richard Bachman, he's kind of King's pseudonym that was, he was outed, I think, right around the time that the novel Thinner was released. I forget what year that was, but Richard Bachman, from the novels I've read of his, which are The Running Man, of course, these are King novels, but under the pseudonym Richard Bachman, um, I've read the running man the long walk i think that's about it but there's definitely king unfiltered and he's really really unconcerned with how he is received (laughs) you know he doesn't care who he might offend he doesn't care about alienating his reader he's not writing to please anybody he's writing to please himself and he's writing that truth as he sees it and if he wants to call a woman a bitch and if he wants to to yell at her and observe her as a sex object he's gonna do it and he's not gonna think twice about it and i think we have that here in in specifically the raft most definitely we have that which is just very off-putting the way that the women are treated the girls rather they're young teenage women Uh, It's a very unfortunate story. It's got the elements of a fun horror camp summer uh, thing going on, and the monster itself is pretty frightening. However, I cannot get past the content, folks, and it's just, it's like, and I think it's just because the juxtaposition. We just had the wedding gig where he was just poking way too much fun at this lady's size and really kind of being, he's going out of his way to insult her. And and then next we have, it's just somebody in the editing room needed to, we need to split these stories up. Like they need to be read not in a collection because by the time you get to the raft, you're like, okay, I'm... I, I'm done. <laughs> I don't like feeling like this. I don't like seeing these women, even though these are isolated stories written years apart. I, I'm struggling with the juxtaposition and the selection uh, for this collection. It's a little hard to swallow, dear friend. So, um, that is something i wanted to bring to all of your attention in regards to why there are some stories i just can't enjoy uh so i'm gonna do my best with the ones i've chosen to talk about objectively what's working like what's cool what is yeah what has potential um and then we'll kind of I'll try not to go too heavily into the subjective areas where I'm just 
I personally, me as a 35 year old woman, I'm just like, I, I can't handle you right now, Steve. Like you are, I'm just sick of it. I'm, I'm sick of this in, <laughs> I'm sick of reading about this in these stories right now. I'm just wishing for something different because it's an off-putting place to be. It's like, we are trying to advance as a society. We're trying to go forward and it's these kinds of things when we go back in time. It's just like, you know, any kind of area of the past that you're examining the negative parts of of um of societal observation and so this is one of those things where it's like all right so okay i think i'm ready to transition now so thank you all for coming to my dead talk so <laughs> uh let's dive in with i kind of already described uh what happened in word processor of the gods the reason why i just couldn't really love it as much as i would have liked and we also kind of talked about the raft i might bring that back up a little bit later um but for now i did want to talk about a story that has wonderful potential but it just didn't work for me and that one is the jaunt so this one is very cool in premise dear ones and i really i think i was reading that this one is might be adapted into a cinematic something and i'm here for it because that sounds awesome so the jaunt is very cool i i like the structure of it we have our initial narrator mr mark oates and he is describing we get this kind of loose description of a sort of a sci-fi waiting room and we're in the 24th century so this is very wild very in the future i'm excited about it and um we jump from him telling his family about the history of the jaunt and like how it was discovered by a scientist named victor caroon and then the narrative shifts to victor caroon's pov so then now we are actually in the laboratory with victor as he is experimenting with mice and this little portal and he's observing what happens what I also really love about the jaunt is King did a tremendous job of sort of creating, he gives us a little bit of world building with what the 24th century looks like in regards to water wars, which uh, is a frighteningly real, um, frighteningly timely, I should say. And he talks about uh, that we... Uh, all planets, everybody jaunts, that's really how goods are transported throughout time and space, and that's how the world works now, is through jaunting, and everybody is hunting for water for on different planets, different moons, because, you know, we're pretty screwed up over here, and uh, don't are running out, running out of natural resources left and right, and so we need the jaunt to, we needed it to create, you know, interstellar colonization, which is seems to have gone over quite successfully to the point where Mark is gonna go to Mars and this is not the first time he's been it's not the first time he's jaunted but this time he's taking his family so uh, we get a wonderful little kind of tale where we're hearing about the history of the jaunt we're hearing about the history of uh the world slash the united states since 1987 since the discovery from victor caroon and his ability to jaunt a mouse um to forward in time and why participants have to be completely asleep when they jaunt 
like there's a reason why that is so the ending of this story i don't want to ruin it because it's actually pretty cool and very creepy uh so the ending of this story is pretty pretty shocking and very like whoa um very creepy however <laughs> i don't think it's plausible folks like i want to love it so much but he didn't sell it as well as i think he could have so the ending made me kind of dislike the the jaunt a little bit i think it's it's a very ambitious premise it's very cool i loved where we were building towards but the ending doesn't work uh because it, there's just no way that the the medical aspect of the ending in which uh there's a character who who has a terrible outcome from the jaunt i will say that so there's a character who once jaunts uh, a disastrous consequence happens and i just feel for the 24th century and for something such as you know interstellar teleportation i would think there would be some kind of uh i don't know um a, a monitor or a either either a vital sign monitor you know being observed i i just feel like they they would have been plugged in a little bit <laughs> and what happened to this person probably would not have happened it just seems like nobody noticed that this character did this and and was therefore jaunted incorrectly uh so the ending was just a little implausible for me so the sci-fi once more i i feel like every time i'm encountering steve's sci-fi output i'm always hungry for a little more uh i talk about this with a lot of of titles that where stephen king sort of edges into the sci-fi i had problems with the running man a lot of problems i great premise but it's just not executed that well i had uh double the problems with the tommy knockers if you guys jump back to that episode and so here we once more have steve in the sci-fi zone and this premise is great guys i love it there's such strength as he's setting up for this tale with this family the dad has jaunted many times before and then we as the reader are kind of learning what has happened to the world in the last couple thousand years and how it all was discovered and like what it, it's awesome it's a great setup but then the final spook out it works but i just think to myself like no there's no way that these people would have not observed what this character was doing like there's just he would have been hooked up to some sort of heart rate monitor or some sort of brain scan like uh, no <laughs> so for whatever reason i was like king you gotta do better with this world building you have to do better with this um with with the sci-fi buy-in and it seemed like the ending he wanted although it was cool and creepy and kind of like yikes it does work it just um it doesn't feel uh like it was earned or rather that it was just kind of a you're sick of writing this story now i think that king at least through my observations i don't think he likes world building very much it's just a theory of mine sci-fi especially fantasy they do require a lot of world building they require you know um kind of 
kind of sell this world, you know? That's why Dark Tower is such a success, is I think he actually kind of forces the reader to to be in this place, you know? He really, really um, goes all out in describing what it's all about. I feel that is not present in some of the other kind of sci-fi where he really has to describe more. I feel like he just gets sick of it. He's like, okay, I just want to get to the the spooky ending and who cares if it doesn't really work in terms of explanation? Who cares? So it's just a theory of mine. I just think um, maybe in the fantasy element, such as uh, Dark Tower, which has a lot of Western in it as well, the world building's on point. It's really working. Um, however, that I maybe not. Maybe I'm thinking of of the areas that are working versus all the questions I have inside Dark Tower. But in general, I think we there is evidence. There's a lot to argue that I don't know if King likes to world build as much as we would like him to. And I really see this with great evidence in the sci-fi tales, specifically The Running Man, Tommy Knockers, and now The John. Uh, cool. The premise is excellent. Uh, the the ending is spooky, but it just doesn't work. I found myself just shaking my head and saying, oh, Steve, there's no way that would have happened. Like, there's no way this person wouldn't have been hooked up to some sort of monitor to monitor consciousness, to monitor heart rate. Like, come on. It, we're thousands of years in an advanced civilization. Like, vital signs would have been recorded. So, if you guys jump back to the jaunt, I would love to know what you think about the ending. And think about what I said. And, and maybe I'm just supposed to, I, I know I'm supposed to suspend my disbelief. I'm supposed to suspend all that and just enjoy the freak show for the ending as it is. And I do. I, I It is cool. It is very like, ee, the, the concept of it is very frightening. And I really did enjoy the kind of final punch that it has, but it just didn't, didn't, didn't sit well. It feels a little, little like we were cheated. Like, uh, I don't know about that one. I, I, I don't think it works. <laughs> so, uh, that is the jaunt. Um, so once more, let's kind of recap a little bit. Um, well, let's see. Before we recap, I have one more that I want to talk about. So we kind of talked about word processor of the gods, the raft, the jaunt. Uh, so there's one in here that I just could not wait till it was over, and that is Cain Rose Up. Thankfully, this is very short. Thankfully, it is not long at all, and I'm very glad for that. So what's interesting here is we have a very disgruntled youth named Kurt Garish, and I can't help but think about Kurt, another Kurt, that of uh, Nazi Kurt Dusander and his little psychopath uh, minion, Todd Bowden from Avd Pupil. So I don't know. I think Kurt might be a cursed name in the King world, at least for me. If you know of a nice Kurt, please let me know. So Kang Rose Up uh, is about this uh, kid. He gets back to his dorm room and he is talking about the biblical story of Cain versus Abel. Of course, it's one of the most ancient stories that we have in which you have the two brothers, Cain and Abel, and back then, at the early days of this interaction between man and and the Judeo-Christian God, 
you you kind of made deals with God via sacrifice or you showed worship via sacrifice always the shedding of blood and so typically a your best animal in that kind of society probably would have been a lamb or whatever the your best animal was you sacrificed it and burnt it on an altar and that was how you communicated with God showed praise all that good stuff um, so Cain did not slay a, a little lamb or an animal he was a farmer and he got like all of his best fruits and vegetables like all of his best output he burnt that on the altar and God didn't ask for that or rather he kind of when he kind of made up his own rules the rules were if you want to talk to god you want to sacrifice you have to sacrifice a living thing you have to have the shedding of blood all covenants all sort of any kind of any kind of bargain or deal with the guy upstairs you have to have the shedding of blood well cain decided he would just do his own thing so he took the fruits and vegetables the best that he grew that season that was his sacrifice but god didn't like that he was not pleased and he told him so and he says you know your brother cain he did the right thing and i love cain and i i love you too but i just need you to do this sacrifice different well cain got super offended and decided that um why is cain why is abel better than me and so he murders his brother so this is one of the most ancient stories of all time and there's a million different ways to study it and look at it but for the explanation of this story um cain kind of uses this story to say that Cain rose up. So Cain murdered his brother in the biblical story and of course it is according to historical texts might be the first murder that we've ever had. And uh, God goes on to mark Cain which is what we have um, in this very mysterious we don't know if it's a physical mark or a spiritual mark but apparently Cain was kind of ostracized for all time uh, some people think he was made immortal and meant to just live forever in shame and there's a lot of like interpretations of the mark of Cain but he was basically cursed by God for murdering his brother and doing the wrong thing and it's a huge allegorical story of course but here we have college student Kurt Garish who decides that he failed his last final, he's not doing well in school, he snaps, locks his dorm room, pulls out a very large gun, and starts to shoot people from his dorm room. And it's like, unfortunately, we live in a society where this is like an everyday thing. And it's it's a little hard to observe this from a lens that isn't tainted by our very own dark reality. And so for that reason, it's it's just gross, it's grim. Thankfully, it's so short, but it's like, I can't, I just cannot deal with like a serial shooter narrative right now. Um, so that's not King's fault, of course. It's just not aging well. The content of this story is unfortunate all too real and it's a reality that a lot of us in the United States unfortunately have to deal with every single day it's horrible um and so because of that it's just uh, I can't I can't I'm just like no um I think the success is in its brevity because it is so shocking. So objectively, I do appreciate that he gets the gun and he just takes out these he takes out this beautiful girl and her parents. It's so graphic, but the 
the shortness is its power. The fact that he is sort of the motivations for why he does that is that he's channeling that spirit of biblical Cain, of Cain who is so mad at the fate he's been dealt because he just feels rejected by his father, his spiritual father. He feels that he's worthless and that he's beyond loving. And so rather than just try to do the sacrifice better or rather than just calm the F down, uh, Cain as well as Kurt uh, decide to just take out innocent people uh, to fill the hole in their own heart, I guess. Um, and there's a lot of dark psychology behind that about hurting, you know, of course, hurt people, hurt people. We know that. So the broken heart of Cain and Kurt, they murder innocent people and that's what happens. So that's quite horrifying if, if Cain is, or if King King and Cain, I should say, but if, if King is really trying for that gut punch of a horrifying story, he did it. And I like the fact that we do have a very short narrative, so that way it's just not a carnage fest. Uh, that is that is appreciated, and I think the strength is in its brevity. The fact that Kurt has decided to. Um, to to make that choice but again once more one of the reasons that i just can't like this story is king ends the narrative and kurt doesn't seem to be stopping he does not seem to it doesn't seem like he's like gonna turn the gun on himself which as the reader that's what i want like all right well then if you're gonna do that just take yourself out like don't hurt others just take yourself out so that's what i want but it doesn't seem like king is putting him in the position to do that which is very eerie and very frightening and all too real and terrible so um that's why kane rose up is is yuck 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 i don't like that it ends on a note where he's just gonna continue shooting up the entire college schoolyard it's, it's very gross um for those of you who have read rage uh out there which is a steve uh, steven which is a richard bachman novel however it's a steven uh early creation one that he is proud is no longer in print anymore but if you have the compiled bachman uh books sandwiched together rages in there i haven't read it i have a feeling i'm not going to read it for a really long time however if you guys have read it and it's just as bad as this short story you can let me know that would be most most appreciated uh so yeah i just can't gel with it objectively the only thing i like is that it's short and I do enjoy the biblical story of Cain versus Abel that he channeled it a little bit to kind of bring on that menacing madness that is the villain of Cain, biblical Cain. It's cool. Um, I can get on board with that in terms of artistic decision making. So there's that, dear folks. But for the most part, I don't care for this story. Um, subjectively, it just hits a tender spot in me that I can't rectify. I can't really balance out. 
I'm just, yeah, yuck, not a fan. Uh, so uh, to, to kind of recap, the ones in these first 11 I'm not super crazy about is the jaunt. The ending just didn't work for me. Cain rose up and the raft. I want to, I, I like the raft. It's just the misogyny in it. It's not working. And maybe if I read it by itself, it wouldn't be that, I, it wouldn't be that bad, but I actually think it still is pretty bad because we have it from Deke and Randy. They're both jerks to these girls. Um, I just am not a fan. Um, the, the black oil slick sort of whirlpool monster very interesting very cool definitely worth exploring the way that he uh devours these people i was cool i was i thought that was interesting but yeah if if i unfortunately reading this story in succession with the other ones where you, you just these women are really uh described in a very ugly way a cruel way it's like oh man oh man the tone and the juxtaposition of these stories is not aging well it's not doing him any favors so it's a little hard it's hard to read these back to back in the year 2022 and i think that's a good thing i think that that's a sign that you know society's trying to advance it's trying to be more inclusive it's trying to put a foot forward and to to not um victimize people the way that they have been for hundreds of years so let's let's do better so uh without going too much further off into the tangent area let's kind of conclude these first 11 stories with one or two honorable mentions and then we'll get ready for the next 10 stories of skeleton crew in the part two episode coming up soon i'll see you guys in the last section boys and girls and children of all ages thank you very much for sticking with me as we take a look at the good the bad the ugly and the kind of puzzling uh within these first 11 stories of skeleton crew so i only have really one honorable mention that i want to kind of talk about with everybody uh and then um yeah one that i kind of just don't get so we have two stories we're going to talk about in this last section and then we will conclude and get ourselves ready for part two so this the story that i really liked and it just kind of fell off the winner's circle but it wasn't in the the losers club it wasn't in the the not winner's circle uh was the monkey the monkey was pretty solid guys that was originally published in 1980 and i kind of talked about how i loved the haunted or mystical item theme that we have in some of these stories the word processor a benevolent item and then the monkey of course is a super duper cursed one but the monkey was pretty solid what i really like about that one is uh i love that we have a parent we have hal who is kind of experiencing life down on his luck having recently been laid off and he's a father to kind of 
preteen boys and he's kind of having a lot of those father-son conflicts where there's like a lot of attitude and a lot of anger and resentment and emotion and so that's kind of a, a very cool thing and then insert this very freaky haunted item that's been in Hal's life since he was a boy. So this one's pretty solid and I like that we have flashbacks to his childhood as well as um, what it's like being a father who's struggling to raise these kids but also uh, completely uh, consumed with this very evil object causing a lot of uh, doom and disaster. So when I look back on this story, I, I think there's just something that it didn't sink its teeth deep enough to get me to love it and whether that's just the pacing of it or the fact that we just don't have as as much there uh, in terms of this one is a very well-paced sort of freaky tale in terms of um Hal as a child and Hal is as a, an adult with the kids and all the ways that he's tried to rid himself of the monkey uh it's it's solid but yeah there's there's something there that kind of kept me from like loving it could be the fact that it freaked me out that very well could be what happened as i do remember reading it feeling very frightened so it could be that it could be that um i might have just got afraid <laughs> and uh, that's why I was like okay I, I don't really want to think about this story anymore so perhaps it is more successful than I realize I just got spooked uh, by the frightening um, creep out of the the monkey as a little toy that moves that makes noise the way it looks and the fact that it's on the cover of the, the collection is like with these menacing little eyes it's like um, it is very frightening and then toward the end it actually subliminally talks to the narrator to how which is like ugh. um so i it could be because i got freaked out and that's might be why it just might be an honorable mention rather than something i loved it seems like the things that i love and really dig into are just the kind of king subjects that have so much uh, beautiful writing and prose and character development and not so much the I mean I'm all about a, a in add adding the frightening elements to that but they kind of have to be present for me to really really love it uh, so I don't know if I had that in this one I think I had a lot of freak out, I had a lot of good setup, uh, good symbols, lots of good stuff, but something, something kind of kept it from being in the winner circle, and that is why it's an honorable mention, but it's pretty solid, it's fun, it is frightening, um, so yeah, I, I did enjoy the monkey, didn't love it, but really, really liked it. And then uh, one that I kind of just want to bring to your guys' attention, maybe you guys can help me, is the last story we examined, uh, Beach World. This was published in fall of 1984. I, uh, I think I need to read this one again, folks, because I don't know what the heck happened. I just don't know what the heck's going on. Um, this was a very puzzling narrative, and I think it was, uh, if my research is correct, I think it was borrowing from some sort of either Twilight Zone or some sort of like spooky show. So I, 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 this is puzzling. It's, they're on a sand planet. Um, there's, 
something with the sand. Uh, some... I'm so confused. I'm so... I this was a challenge beach world. I really I need to read it again, but bottom line, I'm asking for your help cuz I don't know what happened. Like I I know of course what actually happens to our last character in the final moments how he kind of just decides to allow his body to be taken by the sand and he kind of uh, ends his life in a very frightening manner with sand. Uh but I I'm just like well, what's going on? Like it, again, it's another sci-fi one. I'm always having trouble with King and sci-fi. This is just, I'm just like, buddy, can you sit down and just let me have more time with your brain, more time with your ideas? Because I'm lost. I'm just lost, Steve. So, Beach World, I need to read again, but I'm just like, what is going on? He he spends a lot of time sort of coloring the narrative with these sort of details and these characteristics of a of of a sand world and a, a, a dystopian future of some kind but then i there's like robots and oh gosh so i'm gonna have a second read for beach world and next time we'll maybe talk more about if i feel it's improved in terms of where i would rank it would i put it in the winner's circle would i put it in on the loser's bench or would i just call it an honorable mention or is it just one that's gonna float in the ether as just a rando as just a random little floater <laughs> so it could be a floater um so yeah uh, the monkey, solid. Beach world, totally confused and, uh, need to give it another read, even though I feel like one read was enough. So there's that. There is that, folks. Um, but yeah, thank you guys. We're going to kind of wind down here. So the next episode should be coming up. Hopefully it's next week. However, it might extend into two weeks from now as I type my notes on the next 10 stories these are the final 10 within the skeleton crew short story collection next week or the week after coming up in the next part in part two we're going to examine the reaper's image nona for owen survivor type uncle otto's truck morning deliveries Big Wheels, A Tale of the Laundry Game. I should say, Morning Deliveries is Milkman number one, and Big Wheels is Milkman number two. So we'll find out what that's all about. Uh, we have the story Grandma, which is the same as Nona. Nona is Italian for Grandma, so I'm interested in that. And then we also have The Ballad of the Flexible Bullet. And lastly, we have The Reach. All right, so we've got 10 more to go. I am having fun. I am freaked out. I'm also having some issues. So this is a really interesting uh, short story collection, guys. This one is a challenging one thus far. And I, I kind of heard that it would be. I've, I've listened to other folks as well as chatted with other King fans and constant readers that said Skeleton Crew is kind of not one they recommend so we'll see we'll see if 
Mrs. Todd's shortcut will be knocked off the first place pedestal because right now that's where it is. Uh, we might do, yeah, we might do like a top three or a top five, but I'm thinking top three. We're going to keep it in the spirit of the Olympic Games with the gold, silver, and bronze. Uh, but thus far, Mrs. Todd's shortcut is absolutely, um, very high up on the levels in terms of being beat so we'll see we'll see if there's another sparkling diamond in these next 10 uh but i hope i i hope that we get some good ones and um yeah it's this is a lot of fun for me even the not so good ones i'm always reminded that bottom line stephen king on his worst day is going to be 10,000 times better than me on my best day because he is the greatest writer the world has ever known the greatest fiction maestro we have so let us always remember that despite all the jab not necessarily jabs but like whatever sort of criticisms we might heap his way at the end of the day I love him more than anyone else, so let us conclude there. Until next time, part two of Skeleton Crew is coming up soon. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you haven't already, please head over to Apple Podcasts and give the, star, the show a five star if you would be so kind. This allows me to make more friends, meet more listeners, and make more episodes. So if you would be so kind as to also say a kind word about the show in the comment section, that would make my day, make my week, make my month. That would be awesome. I would appreciate that so very much. And if you haven't already, please say hi to me at underratedsk at gmail. Let me know what you think of some of these episodes. Please provide any suggestions, any reader notes, anything I might have missed uh, inside some of the text that we've gone over. These are all open books. All of the episodes are open for discussion, for revisiting. Um, so if there's something I missed in any of these stories, I would love to discuss them further with you. Give me direct quotes, page numbers. I will happily dissect and do some literary analysis by furthering my comprehension of the text. I'm all about that. It's one of my favorite things. So if you would be so inclined, you can definitely write into the show and help me in that area. But once more, thank you guys so much for listening. Wherever you are in the world, please be safe and happy Valentine's Day. Whether it's a Galentine's Day or a Single Awareness Day, you are very special to me and will be each other's Valentine. So take care, everybody. I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye.